Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks, many thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. Wonderful, what a wonderful new hymn, Chosen of God, that we sang. Of course, written to the glory of God by our very own Brady Enders. Who says that they're not writing any good hymns anymore? You bet they are, and we are so grateful that the Lord blesses us with such giftedness in our congregation. We put on the garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. We lift our voice in worship to begin reorienting our minds and our hearts off of ourselves, off of a situation, and onto Christ. Many come this morning with many burdens. The flesh, the world, the devil have assaulted you at various turns, and it draws our gaze downward and inward. But beloved, we are to look out and to look up. Too often our ratio is 20 hard looks at the problem and one glance to Jesus. And beloved, it is to be one glance at our problem and 20 hard looks to Jesus. Look afresh and anew this morning. Let us be encouraged by an excerpt from the Prince of Preachers. Quote, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You will never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember. Therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and the finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings or our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep thine eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercessions be fresh upon thy mind. When thou wakest in the morning, look to him. When thou liest down at night, look to him. Oh, let not thy hopes or fears come between thee and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail thee. This morning we worship with the hymnist. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
Well, last week we continued with part two of our series of a well-known story to many of the rich young ruler. And such a challenging short journey this has been. And we warned at the beginning of this season that everyone, including your pastor, would have their toes stepped on at some point in this story. There is not a single listener that was not represented in some way by the implications and the truths of Jesus' interaction with this young man. And the journey began with such a unique scene. An influential man, a, a member of the religious elite, the wealthy, especially for his age, comes running in humility to Jesus' feet. He throws himself down and he inquires to Jesus how he might obtain eternal life. But of course, as we remember, the man had scarcely opened his mouth to address Jesus before the first layer of error in his heart is revealed. The rich young ruler can't even get past the greeting and the title of Jesus before the music stops, calling Jesus good teacher. And Jesus' response to this man is the opening salvo of a, a truly devastating, a tragic conversation as he peels back the first layer of this young ruler's heart by correcting his understanding of the word good. We spent the entire first part of our series on Jesus' response to being called good. And as it's an inescapable foundation to not only having a biblical worldview, but without having a biblical anthropology, without having a biblical doctrine of man, we cannot see the saving message of the gospel rightly. We must come to Jesus both as He is and as we are as He is in truth, as King and Lord, and as the one who is only truly good, and as we are, as naked and destitute, needing to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus peels back that first layer. You call me good as you understand it, but your understanding is so very flawed. Only God is good. It is an attribute of God as much as His sovereignty or His omniscience. You call me good, but you think that I'm good like you're good, and you have no idea who you're talking to. We camped on the biblical concept of goodness because Jesus stops here. He didn't overlook this man's flawed understanding of what it means to be good because everything flows from that truth. If only God is good, what implications does that have for my life? and for my doctrine, and for how I see others, for how I see the world around me. If only God is good. And conversely, if only God is good, that means I'm not. And what implications might that have for my life, and for my doctrine, and for how I see the world around me? How might that approach, how, I, how, how might that change how I approach the saving message of the gospel? How might that impact how I treat others? How might that inform our humility? How might our lives look different when we know that we are owed nothing, that our merit has purchased us nothing, that we are not mixing our goodness with God's goodness to get us over the finish line of eternity? We see why Jesus stopped there. Why he had to first peel back this layer and correct such an error by this man. But Jesus doesn't stop there, did he? We got out the outside layer of the onion peeled away and we kept going. As we approached verses 19 and 22 last week, 
Jesus opens the the law to this wealthy ruler. He opens the law. Now, why do this? It must have seemed a very odd place to start on the face of it. And yet Paul tells us exactly why in his letter to Romans, that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That is the purpose of the law. Were it not for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul wrote to the Galatians in the Amplified Bible that the law has become to us a tutor, a disciplinarian. Some versions say our schoolmaster to guide us to Christ. Jesus is using the law with our young man, with our young ruler, for the function in which it was designed. And that is to be a revealer of hearts. It is a prober of conscience. It is a mirror for us to look into to see how we actually are. It's meant to expose us and to remove any pretense of goodness or piety. Ultimately, if the mirror is ignored, if the correction from the schoolmaster be not received, it will ultimately crush and destroy. It will grind to powder. Beloved, the law does not have the power to save. Saints, it it only has the power to condemn. And that is bad news. Through my works, through the keeping of the law, even if it were possible, I could not merit eternal life. What a devastating blow for the legalist. But like a doctor who's examined us, who's tested our blood, who's listened to our hearts, and he brings us the fatal diagnosis. The soul that sins, it shall die. For the wages of sin is death. For there's none who do good. No, not one. This is a bleak diagnosis Jesus gives. Jesus has put our rich young ruler on the examination table. And he's found the infection. You're an idolater. You love money and wealth more than God. It's pretty simple, really. And the tests are conclusive. The patient can do one of two things in that moment. He can believe the doctor. He can trust the results, or he can say, I don't believe it, or I can't accept it, and walk out of the examination room. If he would have accepted the diagnosis, the patient would have found that the doctor had the cure. You have a terminal illness, but I've got the cure right here. And if that person be convinced of their illness, they will grasp hold of that medicine, they will lay hold of the cure, they will cling to it, and they will never let go. In this vial is my very life, and I'm so very grateful for it. I was going to die, and now I'm going to live. Or they can reject the prognosis. They can leave the room and never know that the cure was right there waiting. We saw that Jesus never gave our rich young ruler the cure, did he? He never gave him the gospel because he didn't accept the diagnosis. He wouldn't take the cure even if Jesus offered it to him. Indeed, why would he? He doesn't believe the diagnosis. Why would he take the cure? Why? And even if a small part of him knew that the doctor was right, he saw the evidence of his illness with his own eyes. His own conscience assailed him as he sat there on the examination table. The cost of this medicine, the side effects of this medicine... It's just too much. It's just too high. I may be sick, but I feel fine. And this medicine is going to greatly impede my life. I want to do what I want to do. I want to be able to do, and I won't be able to do any of these things anymore if I take that medicine. 
And you might be right about the diagnosis. I might die, but the cost is too great. Keep your medicine. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. The price to live is too high. I don't value my eternal state as much as I value my treasure and my earthly comfort. And he walked away from the Lord of glory, from the great physician who held the cure in his hand. And Jesus did not chase him down. He did not try to convince him to take the cure. Jesus gives law to the proud and grace to the humble. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. The story of the rich young ruler is a story that is repeated in millions of lives every day. Everybody desires heaven, wants eternal life as he did, but few are willing to deny themselves and to pay the price for it, to accept the diagnosis of the law after having put the stethoscope to my heart and to believe the report and to cry out for the cure. This man loved his wealth, his property, all the trappings of success, the honor that it granted him in the synagogue and in the marketplace. And yet, had he not kept the commandments since his youth, as he claimed? Didn't he claim that? But yet he couldn't get past the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. Literally rendered, this verse reads, There shall not be to you any other gods before my face or presence. As the Lord sits upon his throne and the people come before him, there must be no other gods in his royal presence. His relationship with his people allow for no sharing of the divine role in our life. And yet our rich young ruler brings into his presence, into the presence of glory, into the presence of the one who desires to meet and to fill every need and every desire. Into this throne room, he brings property, sticks and stones, wealth and money. God doesn't do roommates. His throne room is his alone. And as we've said many times from this pulpit, we don't get to hold Christ in one hand and the world in the other. Every heart has a throne. Something will occupy that throne. It's never unoccupied where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. But our young man has walked away. He's chosen his God that he will serve. And Jesus is taking, as Jesus is taking every opportunity now to teach his disciples, right? As they're making their way south to Jerusalem. This demonstration, this choice by our rich young ruler opens the door for just such an opportunity. Not only to demonstrate the deceitfulness of riches, the pull of the world, the idolatry that would bind up a soul, but reiterating what he said back in Mark 8, 35-37. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul. Like our rich young ruler, many desperately want eternal life, but not as a replacement for their current life. They want to possess an eternal reward as an addendum to the life he so enjoyed, as a bonus add-on. And of course, Jesus exposes this folly 
We do not add Christ to our life as an accessory here or in eternity. When Christ saves a man, a woman, or a child, he overruns them with irresistible grace. He takes them over and he begins to sanctify them through the Holy Spirit. True salvation, true conversion is not an addition to our life. It is a replacement of our life. The kingdom of God invading a life, bringing salvation to a person makes them a completely new creation. We come to the gospel not as an addition to our lives, but in exchange for our life. If we desire to hold on to what we had, like the rich young ruler, we cannot come. Truth in lending disclosure from the divine bank. No fine print that deceive so many today. But beloved, it goes so much deeper than that, as we will see. This interaction continues to expose the error of salvation by works and Pharisaical Judaism. It will go right to the heart of the prevailing errant teaching of that day. Now, this interaction in our text today on this day in Perea has been observed by many people. And while it seems pretty cut and dry to, this, to us that this man harbored idolatry in his heart, he loved his wealth more than God, we'll see that it actually raised more questions for this crowd than when we began. It really opens up quite a can of worms, as we'll see. Now, what Jesus has just said and will say has stunned the unlooking crowd. And it prompts a scene that's often misunderstood, it's often misapplied, but I pray we're giving clarity on this very important interaction today. So let's, with that, let's open our text this morning. Mark 10, 23 through 27. Mark 10, 23 through 27. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but, with, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Amen. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we begin to close our series on the rich young ruler, Lord, as we look upon this impossible salvation, we ask that you would open our hearts we ask that you would till the fallow ground, that the gospel seed might be planted, that it might grow in due season and bring forth a good harvest, 50 and 100 fold. Holy Spirit, we ask that the arrow would find its mark this morning. Lord, I don't know every need in this congregation this morning, but you do. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, some time ago, a very famous prosperity preacher in Houston, Texas, published a book titled, Your Best Life Now. And most of you know of whom I speak. And the book is full of the usual heresies of the prosperity gospel, which of course is no gospel at all, where the reader is encouraged to use God for their own desires, for their own lusts and purposes, versus the biblical gospel where God saves us for His purposes. But contrary to the book title, My Best Life Is Not Now, 
If I'm a Christian, my best life is to come. My reward is not now. My reward is not here. But that's the lie. Indeed, it's the deceitfulness of those riches that claimed our rich young ruler. But just to give you a flavor of this deception, if one were to turn to page 40 of this book, Your Best Life Now, the author states, quote, you will often receive preferential treatment simply because your father is the king of kings and his glory and honor spill over onto you, close quote. Now, of course, that's preposterous. Someone should have told Paul that as he was three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, and in the night a day adrift on the sea. Yet we highlight this errant teaching of today as we move forward in our text to demonstrate that the prosperity mentality is not a new heresy, but as we will see, it is a very ancient one. One, we will see this mentality and teaching on display in our crowd today. This is not just a trite saying from Ecclesiastes, beloved, that there is truly nothing new under the sun. But let's work our way there this morning. We have such treasure to mine in this text. Beginning with our verse, first verse, let's dive in here. Verse 23, verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples. Now pause there for a moment. Jesus looking around. Now that tells us something of the crowd that had gathered. Not unusual for Jesus. However, it's likely that there were other people of wealth and of means that are looking on this scene as this rich young ruler came and fell. And this unbelievable scene unfolded. And Jesus is looking around at this crowd and he's seeing the reactions. Now, Jesus has dropped bomb after bomb since beginning in verse 17. He's already reigned all over their parade of self-righteous goodness. He's disrupted and upended every paradigm of popular teaching. He's stripped them of their works. Now, at this point, I can only imagine the looks on the faces of this crowd. So why not keep this train going? Right? Let's go for a trifecta here, for a hat trick. Jesus looks around the crowd and he goes in for the spiritual kill. What does he say? How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Now that doesn't sound like a bombshell to us at all. We can see the deceitfulness of riches. We can see the danger of someone who's wealthy and not perceiving a need for a savior. I can testify in my work as a tent maker in my profession, every person I sit next to on a daily basis is a multimillionaire. Every single one of them. And I share the gospel with these people all the time. It is very easy to see that they are trusting in their riches. They worship their wealth. You don't need high degrees in theology to see that. The wealthy tend to be proud. They're accomplished. They have need of nothing. So obviously they don't need God. Religion or this Jesus fellow is just something we add on to our life when it's not going so well. And my life is just fine. Thank you very much. That religious stuff is for weak people who need a crutch. But me, I'm a self-made man, captain of industry. Why would I need your gospel? I hear variations of that all the time. That's a byproduct of modern evangelicalism. And yet Jesus' statement, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God... That seems like a very self-evident statement from Jesus to me and probably to you. But look at the reaction of the crowd, of the disciples. Verse 24, verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. Well, that's curious, isn't it? Doesn't that seem like a statement? Does that 
seem like a statement that would amaze someone. Is that the response you suspected or expected? How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. There's no earth-shattering revelation there. And yet they are amazed at this statement. Why? Jesus was not just speaking to a wealthy young ruler. He was speaking to a religious wealthy young ruler. His ruler was that of a synagogue. Highly religious. A religious wealthy person. And we remember, there's nothing new under the sun. The teaching of that day said that if you were wealthy, you were under the blessing of God. If you were poor, you lived under the curse of God. Same thing for being sick or healthy. Sick, cursed of God. Healthy, blessed of God. Does any of this sound familiar to the errant teaching of today? That's one reason why leprosy or any major sickness in biblical times was so awful. Because you weren't simply sick. You were obviously cursed by God as well because you were sick. It is word-for-word prosperity teaching. And here we have it absolutely pervasive in the nation of Israel. So here we have a rich person, obviously blessed by God as they saw it. And if he's blessed and he can barely make it past the finish line, what hope do I have? What hope do I have? But it gets worse. Back to our text. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children... Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Did you catch that? What just happened there? First statement, how hard will it be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? Uh Uh-oh, right? Mr. Fancy Pants, blessed of God, isn't getting in. And my prosperity rabbi said he's extra special blessed by God because he's rich. But now Jesus sees the reaction of the crowd and he opens the net full wide and says, children, That means in the South, all y'all. How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? Subtle shift, but do we see what Jesus did there? Not just the wealthy. Everyone in the sound of my voice. How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? If I'm listening to this, I know what I'm asking at this point. Let's talk about this word hard. What exactly do you mean? How hard? I live in a works righteousness-based Judaism here. Give me the list of works and rules. Here we go. Yeah, we thought the Pharisees were bad. It sounds like this Jesus fella is going to be even tougher. All right, give it to me, Jesus. How hard is it? What works am I going to have to perform to get me past the pearly gates? You know, the rich guys there are sweating quite profusely at this point. So what does Jesus say? Verse 25. Verse 25. Here's how hard it is. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, very quickly, we won't spend a lot of time on competing theories out there, but just to address them briefly, this text has received all kinds of different treatment over the centuries trying to explain it. And one common teaching was, was that there was something called the needle gate in Jerusalem. It was a small gate that people would try to cram their camels through. <laughs> now, there's nothing in antiquity or archaeology that shows anything like this. I've not found a, a serious theologian or, or commentator that gives credence to this. So I think we could set that aside. Another quick theory is that there was a, a one-letter scribal error to the word rope. 
Rope and camel are very similar uh, in this language. That doesn't seem to be the case either. But even if it was, that wouldn't change the meaning. You can't put a rope through the eye of a needle either. So now the simplest, most natural reading of this is to mean exactly what it says. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking their language. What is the biggest animal in Israel? A camel. What's the smallest opening in Israel? The eye of a needle. Jesus is using extremes here just to make a point. Is it possible to put a camel through the eye of a needle? No, it is not possible. It is impossible. Everyone listening would have understood this. Now watch the response of the people. It's about to get deep here. Verse 26. Verse 26. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, then who can be saved? Feels like we're missing a piece of the puzzle here, doesn't it? They are astonished, amazed, distraught at what Jesus is saying. Who then can be saved? If it's harder for a rich man to be saved than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, then woe unto us. But why the question, then, who can be saved? Most listening to Jesus here wouldn't have been rich. The guy next to me isn't rich. And you said it was the rich who couldn't get in. That would make sense to me, right? Those pompous cats, I'm, I'm, I'm poor and humble. But yet this is not their thinking at all. Their response to Jesus slamming the door on the rich is to say, how then can any of us be saved? The missing piece of the puzzle is the prosperity gospel in ancient Israel. And this is critical to understanding their amazement that this wealthy man, this religious wealthy man, will scarcely be able to enter into heaven. Watch this, beloved. This is going to drill down in an instant to the very core of the gospel. Why were these people so amazed? We already recall that to be rich, you're thought to be blessed by God, right? And if you being blessed by God can't get in, what hope have I? That's a key component. But what about being rich made your blessing increase in their view? What was it about being rich that made salvation possible, they thought? Why was it so unthinkable for the masses to hear Jesus say this about a wealthy religious person, like our rich young ruler, or more broadly speaking, any rich person in Israel? If you were rich, what sort of sacrifice and offering did you bring to the temple? Did you bring two penny turtle doves for the remission of your sins? No way. You're rich and you're religious. What are you bringing? You're bringing the best of the best. A beautiful lamb, pure as the driven snow, white as white, unblemished, or the finest bull. The most pure sacrifice that can be offered are yours as a wealthy man to give. So in the mind of the Jew, in the prosperity teaching of the day, who had more favor with God? Who really, really super duper had their sins covered? The ones who brought the two pence turtle doves? Not hardly. They're doing the bare minimum. Lucky if God even pays them any mind. They're barely worthy to even come into the place of sacrifice. But look at this bull. Look at this lamb. Perfection. Rich. God will surely be pleased with this. You've brought in the very best sacrifice. I've read Cain and Abel. I know how God loves the best sacrifices. And look at the size of that bull. 
God will surely be pleased. But here now, this teacher from Nazareth is saying that this wealthy religious man has almost no chance. So wait a minute. We're amazed at this statement. We're shocked. We're dismayed. If he can't make it in with the sacrifices that he can afford to offer, what hope do I have? Do we see that? Does their reaction start to make some sense now? Do we see this wicked brew of prosperity gospel mixed with a pervasive works righteousness? That is a nasty brew. That's why these people are amazed. Number one, he's rich. He's blessed of God. But because he's rich, he's bringing the very best, the most pure, the most highly pleasing sacrifice to the temple to have his sins covered. And me, I'm poor. I'm cursed. Strike one. I brought two turtle doves to temple for sacrifice. The minimum acceptable. My sins are barely covered, if at all. And you are saying he can't get in with his bulls and lambs. I'm toast. I'm done. I have no chance. Who then can be saved? And what does Jesus say? How does he respond? He says, you're right. You're right. Salvation is obtainable through unobtainable through any of this. Salvation cannot, cannot be obtained through any work. It cannot be bought at any price. Not a turtle dove, not a bull, not a lamb. Your fear, you fear it is impossible. That this sounds like the impossible salvation. And you would be right. Look at our final verse, verse 27. Verse 27. And looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible. Stop. We must stop. We could preach on this one line for the rest of the year and how needed would it be. You're right, Jesus said. With people, it is impossible. This is an impossible salvation. With your wealth, it is impossible. You cannot buy it. With your works, it's impossible. You cannot earn it. If we needed to boil the entire message down to one line, it resides right here. The meaning of the text resides right here. You cannot save yourself. Everyone in the sound of Jesus' voice was trusting in their ability to pay, their ability to work. Heaven awaits those who earn. And yet the rich with their bulls and lambs are without hope. The poor with their turtle doves are without hope. And Jesus gives them the bad news. He leads with the diagnosis what the rich young ruler was asking for, what each of us listening desires, what the whole world intrinsically and innately longs for to have eternal life, it is impossible. If we don't get this, we don't get the gospel. This is step one, foundational pillar one. Salvation cannot be of me, it must be of him. In the realm of human ability, salvation is unobtainable. Line up your wealth, line up your works, line up your good morality. They all fall like dominoes. With people, it is impossible. The law stands against us. Even if we cry, all these things I've kept from my youth, it's not true. That's the bad news. That's the law. It stands as a testimony against us. 
And now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, Paul says in Romans, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be found accountable to God, be found guilty before God. The people were amazed. They were astonished. They were demoralized. Who then can be saved? How can we attain to this impossible salvation? How can we acquire eternal life? You, you can't. That's the bad news. Salvation is the greatest miracle in human history. Not creating the cosmos, not healing leprosy or healing the blind or the lame. The greatest miracle, the most humanly unobtainable gift, the most supernatural act in all time and space is God taking a hater of God who was dead in their sins, whose heart was wicked and fallen, who had no desire for the God of the Scriptures and making them live. And when people are enraptured by that gospel, when they are taken up in its beauty, it is here in these truths that the heart resides and meditates. Listen to what Paul writes in this praise in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, impossible salvation, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of this air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we were formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. This is an impossible salvation. But God. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It gets better. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Why would He do this? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of the grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, it's for his glory. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one may boast. How's that for good news? Jesus closes our text He closes our text, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Only God can make a dead man live. Only God can take a person that was a hater of God, that was at enmity with God, that was an enemy of God, and make him or her a friend of God, a child of God, redeemed in the beloved, given an inheritance undefiled. We trade our ash for beauty, and it is impossible. Who then can be saved? Unobtainable through human works, through riches or poverty, through bulls or lambs or turtle doves, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. He has made a way through repentance and faith to be brought near to God. The greatest miracle of all time, the salvation 
the impossible salvation made possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by your word this morning. Lord, these are not easy words for us as we are stripped of our part that we play. Lord, as we are left bare, as we are left dependent upon you. Lord, in light of these texts, your mercy and your grace radiate a light that is overwhelming for us, that is so humbling, Lord, that we can do nothing but look up and give great praise and honor and glory to the one who has chosen to seat us in heavenly places that is beyond what we could even fathom, beyond what we owed or deserved. Heavenly Father, we ask that this word, this message, this text would go down deep, that it would seat and take hold, that would bring forth fruit in due season. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.